This is Farmer's Kitchen with Spinnies on Dubai Eye 103.8. Helen Farmer with you, your chance to hear from the experts, the insiders and the industry, get some great recipe ideas and of course share your questions as well as we talk all things food. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. If only you could see all the texts I'm getting, everybody sending me the description of what kind of food they eat during their different celebrations. It's just not right. (laughs) Ian's on the line with us right now. So Ian, how are you today? What's going on with you? Hi, good afternoon, Poonam, Zina. I'm in a school run right now, but uh, I'm listening on your show. I'm guessing you're from South Africa. <laughs> no, I'm not from South Africa. No, where Africa. are you? Your accent no. Don't tell me Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> where are you from? From Philippines. You sounded South African when you first started. I need to clean my ears. Okay, Ian, <laughs> what is your favorite celebration? Yeah. The, the biggest family festivities uh, is having during the Christmas season, especially now approaching. Mm. Now, this is like the reunion for all of our uncles and aunties and cousins yeah. who come from different countries and celebrate Christmas as one family back in uh, in Manila. So we, we prepare our food, like the natives' uh, delicacies, like uh, uh, roasted uh, chicken, beef, everything that we missed here. Uh, in our homes, so yeah. it will be like uh, like very uh, glad tidings for each and every one of us because laughter and stories will be a part of the celebration as well. Because one year we haven't seen our family, so I know. Yeah, yeah. I know it's especially, it's hard, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, especially at this time, uh, we are doing zooms and everything. But mm. uh, the physical meetings, it would be better. Because yeah. uh, you will really feel the love of the family once again, you know. So do you have good friends to celebrate Christmas with here? Yes. My family is here. My, my good friends are here er- everywhere. But yeah. What, what is one thing that you have to have on Christmas um, that you, makes it feel like Christmas, whether it's a, a dessert or one vegetable or what is it? It's the, the ham. Okay. The ham. Okay. The roasted ham. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I am wishing you a happy Christmas. And if you have a, a spare seat at the table and I'm free, I'm happy to come and taste this food. <laughs> well, of course, I will delightly for you to come over oh, to our house. Thank you, Ian. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Right. We now have, is it Luca? Hello. Hi, Luca. Where are you from? I am from Italy, from the north of Italy. Oh, buongiorno. How are you? Bu- Bonjour, I'm good, thank you. And you? I'm good. Where about in Italy when you say the north? <coughs> the north means uh, Milano. So I have been to Lake Como, near George yes. Michael, near George Michael, George Clooney's house. I wasn't stalking. Yes. So that's yes. I got the train from Milano to um, Lake Como. So it's lovely. Bellagio, Bellagio, yes. Bellagio, My that's where I went. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. He's actually near my grandmother's house. Really? Is, does, yes. does he like? Is he a friendly neighbor? Has she ever seen him? I I have never seen him. I don't go very often. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother passed away at 105 years old last year, and she told me that he's been seen sometime with his beautiful wife sometimes in the down season, in the low season. Oh wow! Okay, so um, tell me about what is a special celebration for you? I'm assuming it's Christmas in Italy. 
Yes, it's Christmas and it's more of the family. Like Ian was saying in the Philippines, it's exactly like at our place. Yeah. We are we are a very large family. Yeah. Uh, I have 11 cousins, all of them married with kids. And uh, so we are nearly four generations alive and we always meet uh, one day per year where we, we don't even speak during the year. We have so different lives <laughs> in different countries. But that, that is the time where we where we go to the grandmother's house uh, mm. near Bellagio, and mm. uh, it's a it's a chance for the kids to open the the gifts in the morning. We all we all spend time there, and of course, the food food is just a little bit of a of the contour of the celebration. It's more of the family gathering yeah. that counts for for us. Food, as you guess, uh, is quite important for us. So everything is handmade. Mm. It all starts early in the morning to make fresh pasta and the filling for the special type of ravioli that we have for Christmas and then the roast beefs and the sauces and the, the cakes. Uh, but that is just a way of putting, it, of, of getting our hands uh, dirty together. Uh, but, but it's, it's interesting that you just said pasta because obviously you're Italian. We never yes. have pasta for Christmas. Do you have pasta and pizza and all the traditional stuff? I am very sorry for you. I'm joking, of course. Because <laughs> I don't have pasta. <laughs> no. Pizza for us is a comfort food. It's not something you put on the table at home uh-huh. unless you you make it your, your own self. It's yeah. more of... You you go out and get a pizza. Yeah. But uh, pasta, all kind of pasta from the spaghetti that you can make with uh, your little uh, machine uh, or the field pasta that is is a little bit more complicated, uh, that is also handmade, including the filling. So it's something that it's made normally by the, el- the elder part of the family because yeah. they know the small tricks. Yeah. And, uh, and it's hundreds of them. So it, it may take a few days to make, you know, when you have to cook for 30 people, you have to give them at least 20 raviolis each. So it's 600. <laughs> so it's a, it is a very hard work. Oh. But it's, it's done with love. So are you flying to Milano then for Christmas? I normally do. My kids are here. My, my family is here. So we all fly there. We all meet the cousins that mm. we, we never see. Somebody comes from, from the States. Comes, mm. Somebody comes from Germany. So we are all uh, spread over the the world and it's uh, the only chance where everybody makes the effort to, to come and gather uh, to especially to spend time with the elder part of the family because when you live outside you yeah. never know if it's the last time absolutely that you see them. So, i agree so with it's, you so it's the it's a good chance oh well i'm wishing you a very good christmas to see all your family and uh, it was lovely chatting to you luca and i have to say ciao yeah. Ciao, grazie mille. Thank you. Take care. Grazie. Grazie. Merry Christmas. We're already saying Merry Christmas. It's not even December. Well, is it December? No, it's not December just yet. Welcome back to Farmer's Kitchen with Spinneys. Eat well, live well. Only on Dubai Eye 103.8. So let's now go to the line. Ifia, how are you? Hi, good afternoon, Puna. Thank you. How are you? We're really good. Just really hungry as usual on a Thursday with Farmer's (laughs) Kitchen. So tell me, what's your favorite celebration and what kind of foods do you eat? So the the most favorite celebration is during the Eid al-Adha outbreak. So Mm -hmm. that's when we get our long weekend in the UAE and it allows us to meet our extended family and relatives. Um, Usually we have a feast at home, not just in my house, even when we're going to visit our cousins or relatives. Yeah. We always have a huge uh, table full of food. Um, one main feature in 
all the uh, the table uh, of the mutton biryani 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 okay all the south asian families i think it, they would they would agree with me when i say it's not eat without biryani so that's something that's common um, among all uh, from my family and my extended family as well and we have other dishes which include a lot of meat because this is one of the um uh, the second eat which where we we have a sacrificial lamb yes um, that 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 takes place and then we distribute it to our neighbors our family our friends and then we have a freezer full of just meat lying just to be cooked so we would make <laughs> a lot of meat dishes and a lot of meat gravies which would include mutton korma maybe kebab and we would go for barbecue the next day So, wow. So I I think the week after that is digestion week, isn't it? Because it will exactly, be <laughs> exactly. it would be a detox week because we just completely need to get here all the toxins of our body from the the, the two or three days that we completely uh, went on cheat meals. Um we have a lot of desserts as well. Yeah. We have something called uh, sheer korma. Uh there's some another south uh, Indian dessert that we have which is like an egg pudding uh, which includes coconut jaggery and uh, uh other spices as well so you can you can imagine how uh, rich indian dishes are so we just we go all out during eat no no that's um, amazing oh that's amazing <laughs> and um yeah i hope <laughs> i just hope you have loose clothes hope you have loose clothes on while you're uh, eating that because you do need some oh, yes, that's definitely <laughs> all <laughs> right oh sure. uh, afia thank you so much for joining me and we have joshing joshing what's your favorite favorite festivity Our, my favorite festivity is Christmas mm-hmm. and that's when we do our food feasting. So it's a good time for family to get together. Yeah. Um and if, if we were home in South Africa, uh, the weather is perfect for yeah. the summer. Um to have a braai or a barbecue. Oh. And we Oh yeah, and we have something called a spit braai, which yeah. is a whole lamb mm-hmm. that's um slowly cooked um and basted for hours uh, in a spit rotisserie. and salads on the side um yeah it's just, that's uh christmas for us so can i ask you have you bought your lamb yet no yeah no i i should be having yeah we actually i make duck actually um and um yeah that's what we would have here in 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 the uae but back at home we'd have the whole lamb because that's that's enough to feed a couple of families well I wish you a wonderful Christmas. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai I 103.8. So joining me now is Tiffany Eslick, content director from Spinney's magazine, and we're going to be talking about cream, and we're not talking about just any cream. We're talking about French cream. Welcome to the show, Tiffany. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Now, um I grew up in England and we'd get cream and clotted cream and all this lot, and I know when it comes to desserts, butter, cream, you name it, the french are probably the best in the world but what exactly is french cream compared to let's say cream that we get from the supermarket every day you know i think the thing that comes when you look at french cream is or any dairy product coming from france or even from europe you're looking at what do the cows eat how are they raised how are they cared for you know pampered um and then how there's sort of like the production methods behind the making of the product and in france they've just they've been doing this for centuries you know and the 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 terroir is such great quality of the food that the cows are eating is great um the age old farming methods that are followed and the way that they're reared is you know it's there's sort of strict rules but um families are following these methods and so this is what's kind of ending up in these results of these you know great cream great yogurt great butter and cheese 
Oh, jeez. That's my weakness. That is my big weakness, <laughs> Tiffany. You know, um, so living in England, going to France was very quick for us. It was like an hour's flight. And I remember I went to Bordeaux and I had the first time I'd never seen, heard of a chocolate fondant. And I tried mm-hmm. it and I was like, this is like heaven. And that's really opened me up to so much uh, French sweet desserts. So you yes. went to France. When did you go to France? I'm a little bit jealous here. It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was really fortunate to go um, a few weeks ago, actually. Um, and so we got some really lovely cold weather, which is nice because I like that. Um, and I was sort of on this amazing whirlwind journey where we went to visit French farmers. Um, so, you know, you could see sort of the cows, how they raised. We watched the whole process, the milking process, and then how the cream is separated from the milk and then what products can be made. We went to, we worked with um, Michelin star pastry chefs um, and made all sorts of amazing, interesting, creamy desserts. Uh, we did this tour in Paris where I ate something like seven different desserts in three hours oh. uh, moving from like patisserie to patisserie <laughs> which was just crazy um, but really kind of seeing how cream can be used in all different forms you know and how it's um, we you know looked at classic desserts but then like modern takes on those um, I think my favorite was ending up at Pierre Hermès's shop um, and we had the millefeuille which was unbelievable um, and yeah and it was just you know everything was centered around cream which was Really, really interesting. It's funny because um, I used to start going to a lot of French restaurants in my hometown. They started opening in Birmingham. And I went, and they're very serious, these French chefs, about food. And they don't really like the way the Brits eat French food. So I was sitting there and they gave me this beautiful homemade, you know, baguette. And I said, Do you mind if I have some butter? And under his breath, he walked away saying, These Brits always ruining the bread with butter. And I felt really bad, but they're so passionate about their food, aren't they? Absolutely, and rightly so. You know, I think when you've got such an excellent, um, you know, cuisine, you you need to be proud and you need, I think, you know, they have rules and regulations, but it's important and and that's what maintains the quality. Yeah, that's why they're still, you know, at the top of the game. You have to be, you know, precious about the food. But let's talk about some tips when it comes to cream. There's a lot of things you need to learn. Like I've heard about soft peaks. I've heard about high peaks. Give us some of the top tips to use. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know it was so scientific. It is, you know, um, but I think if you follow the rules, then you can master it. Um, we were really lucky enough to work with Chef Nicolas Boussin at the um, Maison de la Creme. It's run by Elevir. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had this fantastic workshop where we really, I mean, I thought I knew enough about cream and I really didn't. Uh, so the first thing he taught us was that when you're whipping cream, you must be using, a, you know, it must be cold, the cream, and you must be using a cold bowl. So you put it in the fridge for at least two hours before you're going to use use that um, because this will make sure that your your cream whips properly. So you're saying the cream um, and the bowl yeah. should be in the fridge? Yeah. Oh, so wow. you, you put it in the fridge and then take it out two hours later before you're going to start whipping. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's really important, you know. And also um, that you must do it on a slow speed. So I know when I've tried to do this, I often use, just use a hand beater, which is probably like sacrilege, and do it really fast. And, you know, it works, but it's, it's never, you know, as it should be. So always on a slow speed when you're whipping cream. And then you've got these different peaks that you're going to look out for, right? So a soft peak is... You're kind of whipping for about 
six to eight minutes mm. um, and that's when you turn your whisk upside down you've got a, it's all, look, the chef was calling it a bird beak it's kind of like a soft bird beak shape yeah. when you look at the peak and it should curl downwards and then melt back into well the peak should you know melt back into themselves um, and those are you you know that's that's kind of like the first start and then if you want stiff peaks you, you keep whipping for longer and it should be really firm when you turn your whisk upside down um, and then and the mixture should be really heavy and that's really great for when you're wanting to do piping or decoration work um, on any dessert and actually we learned how to pipe properly which was just really good because I, I mean I had no idea and the chef had great patience trying to teach me how to do that um, and then if you kind of over whip it any further than that yeah. um, the best thing is to do is to just carry on and make your own uh, fresh butter because <laughs> there's not much you can do to save it. You, you know, know? <laughs> you know what I would do? I'd put it on my face because you know milk and cream is very good as a facial. Did you know that? Like Cleopatra. Yeah, yeah, you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it'd be, it would be a waste. A chef would be angry with me. But would a chef, <laughs> would, would, would a chef actually um, turn his nose up if we used an electric whisk to beat this? cream no i don't think okay. so but i think just follow the you know as many rules as you can and, and do it slowly and then it's fine you know um it's we all have that at home right so it's going to be the easiest or if you've got a stand mixer yeah um if you want to go really fancy we tried um, experimenting with a siphon um which you know, uses gas um and that you can pick up here as well and that's, that's it's actually not so scary and it's quite easy to do but yeah a hand beater or a stand mixer are fine so did this trip inspire you to like want to come home and start trying this? Absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm not a baker. Um, I usually use a lot of uh, French cream and, or European cream in my, you know, savory food. But I was like, yeah, I'm actually going to try this now. It's not that difficult. Piping it is not scary. So, yeah, let me try. But, I haven't done it yet, but I will be when I, on holiday. <laughs> but what about like, you know, these days a lot of people, um, you know, they can't drink normal cow's milk. Can you make cream in any other kind of milk uh, alternatives? Um, you can, but I think you're not going to, you know, I mean, if you're vegan, you know, obviously you can, uh, you can have coconut cream and things like that, yeah. but, um, I don't, you know, you're not going to get that texture. Yeah, I don't know. that right consistency. Yeah. Yeah. You can't beat, you can't beat traditional cheese, milk and butter. I'm sorry. You know what is? I'm like, I can't answer this because I'm a total dairy fan. So I'm just assuming <laughs> yeah. when you went on that trip, there was no such thing as a diet on your mind whatsoever. <laughs> oh no, but there's never a diet on my mind working in food. I love that. I love that. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai I 103.8. So we're back with Tiffany S. Slick. She's the content director from Spinney's Magazine, making me jealous of her chick flick trip, tasting pastries in Paris and France recently. It does sound like a chick flick, you know, like a Hallmark movie, don't you think, when you're <laughs> describing it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so did you come back with some recipes that you can share with us? Because now, I don't even know if I'm going to say this right. I'll say it and then you can correct me. Uh, framboises? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so we came, I, I mean, I came back super inspired. Um, and in our latest edition of Spinney's Mag, uh, we've got a whole feature on, I think, four different recipes using French cream. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, the first one is framboisier. Framboisier. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> so essentially what it is, is it's a lovely almond sponge cake, super easy to make that, ba- you know, that dough. Um, and then it's filled with like a really thick layer of um, patisserie cream. Mm-hmm. So that is French cream. It's single and double cream that is mixed with egg yolks, um, a vanilla pod, 
bit of cornstarch, um, and then we've actually filled that with raspberries. Um, and so it's kind of like a, a san, an almond sandwich cake that's got this delicious cream. It's sort of, you know, really thick cream inside it. Okay. Um, it sounds heavy, but it's actually quite a light dessert. Um, so really good in this festive season, you know, like after a heavy um, festive meal, for example. Yeah. Um, and really, it's not difficult to make at all. Um, the creme pad is super easy if you just follow my rules about whipping cream that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we actually made that. We learned to make that with Chef Nicholas at the Maison de la Creme as well. And so if I can do it, anybody can do That's it. That's amazing. Absolutely. You know, you know, you can make the dessert ahead of time. Um, you can make the, the base of the cake and then you can just get the cream ready. Um, so it's really easy. Okay. Now, the next mm. one, again, I'm going to mispronounce it. I did A-level French, but obviously it's down the drain, all of this. Okay. <laughs> Vanilla Mavillou. Yes, <laughs> vanilla merveilleux. Merveilleux. Um, yeah, so that means, uh, merveilleux means marvelous in French, which is just such a lovely, you know, name yeah. for a dessert. And these are super, super easy to make. They're like little meringue kisses that have been stuffed with cream and then rolled in cream and then rolled in crushed meringue as well. So it's kind I of feel like, like rolling in cream one. with all this conversation. <laughs> And then should we cover you in, like, you know, crushed meringue as well? <laughs> I'll just eat myself, basically. <laughs> um, and they are really popular in Paris. You, you'll find, like, whole shops dedicated to them. You oh, know? my goodness. You're absolutely right, because they're massive meringues. Is that right? Um, well, we, yeah, you can you can get massive ones, but you can also get small ones. So, we've you know, we've made these little ones. I've seen um, them and in France. Actually, yeah. A big cheat tip is if you don't want to make the meringues, you can actually just pick like store-bought ones, you know, pick them up at the store. And then you can make your cream filling and then do your whole rolling thing. So, yeah, really easy dessert and they look lovely as well. Yes, I have seen them in France. They ring a bell now. Okay, so the next Mm. one I can say is mango and passion fruit choux. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> très bien. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this is, I mean, you know, shoe pastry, if anyone hasn't made it, it's something that's really, you need to know how to make that. It's used in so many different French desserts. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest thing with that is that it's, the shoe is using steam to rise. Mm-hmm. So you you mustn't like open the oven, you know, while it's busy cooking uh, or baking. You need to really, really watch that. Um, and what we did with the with this one is that we actually put a crackling top um, just to make it a little bit more fancy. Mm-hmm. So all you do is you make your shoe pastry and then you're adding butter, sugar and flour mixed together and sort of putting that on top of your shoe. And when it bakes, it becomes really sort of, you know, like it cracks and it's got it adds a bit of crunch um, to the dessert and looks really really nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then we just filled this with um, single cream, creme fraiche, and a fruit puree. And so we did mango and passion fruit, but you could really do any kind of fruit that you want. And lastly, the sable Breton cake. That doesn't sound very French. Uh, yeah, so, well, sable is... Um, oh, sable. So, yeah. <laughs> sable. Um, so basically, it's, you know, like if you have little sable biscuits, kind of like buttery shortbread, yes. like, essentially. So we took that idea and made it into like a really lish, like really buttery rich cake mm-hmm. uh, base and then topped that with um, wonderfully fresh cream that's been whipped and fresh strawberries. So it's a little bit of a take on different things, but using really good French butter and cream. Okay, well, uh, Tiffany, all I have to say to end this is when are you making one of them and when is my delivery due? Because <laughs> well, you learn you from know, the uh, best. This weekend, I've got some time. So, yeah. Amazing. Okay, well, I will look at cream in a very different way now. I really will. But thank you so much for joining us. 
Sure thing. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai I 103.8. Well, joining me now is a lovely lady by the name of Michelle France. And uh, she's talking about a company that she started. She's an entrepreneur and uh, it's called Home Cook ME. Is that right, Michelle? Home Cook Me. Home mm. Cook Me. Mm. Okay. And does it stand for Middle East or are you it cooking can. yourself? It can, but mostly for <laughs> cooking for yourself. <laughs> okay. So tell me a little bit about your story because it's quite interesting. And I want to know what led you to go from where you were uh, teaching to being an entrepreneur? Oh, fine. Um, well, I, we've been, I've been in Dubai for over 20 years and uh, um, I've spent some of my time in Dubai, well, all of my time in Dubai working in schools um, and I also taught in Australia, which is where I'm from. Um, so you were a teacher here? I was a teacher, but by the, by, until July 21, I was actually head of a primary school. Oh. So I was in senior leadership for about 15 years right. of, my, of my time here in Dubai. So it was a uh, pretty full-on job and a rather demanding one. And Anything with that many kids is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but thoroughly, thoroughly um, enjoyable, thoroughly rewarding, and um, it was not in the cards actually, Poonam, to 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 leave um, my job. Yeah, because because, because I read that you knew what you wanted to be at the age of seven. Did you I know you did. wanted to be a teacher? A hundred percent. I wanted to be an air hostess, <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> um, and uh, actually, that was that was largely uh, that revelation came to me when we were living in. South Africa, which is where I was born, mm. and uh, my mum used to teach um, teenagers actually who didn't get the opportunity to complete school, and who had to go out and work for their families. And I ended up uh, giving her a helping hand, and uh, we helped them with basic literacy skills. And that kind of made me fall in love with the rewards that teaching has to offer, and the um, incredible, incredible value that it can add to somebody's life. So um, tell me what happened to you when you were younger. There was some kind of surgery and it sounded yeah. very dramatic <laughs> at that age. Well, actually, the surgery didn't occur till I was a lot, lot older. Um, but it happened as a result of um, an illness during childhood. Mm. And uh, during childhood, I apparently contracted rheumatic fever, which was treated as the common flu. And um, it wasn't until I was 10 that they realized um, because of the damage that they could tell that was done to my heart valves mm. that uh, it actually had been a bout of rheumatic fever. Um, so I'm pleased to say that I was able to lead a fairly normal, active child, child uh, life uh, or childhood. And uh, I didn't actually require my first surgery. And until you're talking about heart surgery I'm here. talking about open heart surgery. Wow. Um, and by the time I was 29, I needed a double valve replacement. Um, so, yeah, that was that was something else. But a lovely story, too, at that point. I was working in Dubai and I was working in Australia at the time and mm. that required quite a considerable um, recovery period. Yeah. Um, but then 10 years later, um, when they gave me the initial surgery, I had what they call tissue valves, which and they knew that they would wear out at some stage. And the prognosis that I had was that they probably would last anywhere between 10 and 20 years. So I had a donor valve and I had an animal valve implanted. And uh, um, and almost 10 years to the day, would you believe, um, one of the valves 
um, the donor valve actually um, stenoded, which means it doesn't work anymore. And uh, I had to have a second open heart surgery. And how old were you then? I was exactly 10 years old, so 39 years old. (laughs) And, but you know, Poonam, the way that I look at it is the marvels of technology and the medical uh, advances, they were able to do something for me. They were able to go to a shelf and literally pick up the spare parts that were required Mm. to fix me up. And I was given two um, prosthetic valves, which are plastic and um, metal valves, actually, which I now have um, inserted. And I'm happy to say happy and healthy as a result. Okay, well, that's Michelle's very simple background (laughs) there. Um, But I can tell you, uh, looking at her, she looks so healthy and happy. You would never think that. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. So right now with me is Michelle France from Home Cook Me, an ex-teacher who's had a quite an interesting childhood and she's so brave actually after having two open heart surgeries just told us the story but she's an entrepreneur has created home cook me now i want to ask you actually uh zina's with me zina mm-hmm. are you a good cook do you cook at home a lot i try i try really hard and 90 percent of the time i fail I think we, we have a teacher for you right here now. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Michelle, so you're a teacher, you love food, um, and you managed to turn those two uh, sort of passions of yours into a business. Did you have that one moment, that eureka moment when you put two and two together and started your home cook business? Tell me your story. Well, uh, I wish I could say that it was as simple as that. Um, but as we all know in Dubai, things happen, things that you don't plan. Uh, um, actually happen. And uh, I was given about a year's notice or the, the, the in our school that the school was going to be refurbished over a two-year period and that we were all um, going to be looking for alternative employment. And uh, it was kind of at a time in my life, um, Zena, where I thought this, if there was ever a time to actually think about something else that I would really like to do that's been on my bucket list for a while Um, then this provided a natural break uh, to actually try something and uh, so really uh, with the help of my husband um, who works with small uh, and large uh, small and medium-sized businesses he actually came with the idea Um, for many many years Zena I've been a busy girl in the kitchen at any given opportunity in between working like lots and lots of other mums and dads out there and uh, um, cooking was something that I felt very confident about it was something that I thoroughly enjoyed doing and I know that my friends and family thoroughly enjoyed the 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 product of what I produced and so um, it, we kind of it was through a few chats with him where he sort of said that this opportunity, um, this was the the precise opportunity I needed to actually try something new, and uh, I didn't need much encouragement. I was exhausted by the end of a very, uh, you know, busy busy time, and so uh, yeah, I think it was about uh, December last year where we thought, okay, I think this could be something that I could investigate and I did and I explored it with him and um, we launched in October. So your business is turning one year old? 
Well, in the- my mind, it's turning one year old, but from a from a technical registration point of view, we're not quite two months old yet. <laughs> so, so what happens at Home Cook Me? What is it all about? Do okay. we come to you? Do you come to us? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what I actually try to do, Poonam, is offer a, a range of experiences. So uh, for the home cooks who uh, enjoy getting together, I have an option where um, they can collect a group of friends and family from anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we can all meet on Zoom. Uh, you know, time differences withstanding. Yeah. And uh, we can all uh, cook together. And the, the the group that comes to me, like that, a bespoke group, we can actually decide together what we're going to make. So, so I can do that like in advance. Dubai's Martha Stewart. Is that what you're turning into? I can feel <laughs> I it. I love that. <laughs> well, I'll hold you to that one, but you'll have to wait and see. Um, but so that's one of them. The other one is a bit uh, what Zena um, was talking about before. There are lots of mums and dads out there, there um, who are not confident about being in the kitchen and that's where the coaching part of my business really kicks in and I try to offer or I do offer a bespoke service where I can actually go and actually have a consultation and say right what are some of the things that you would love to be able to do Mm. with great ease with great success uh, in your own kitchen to to benefit your family and your friends Mm. and so I offer bespoke coaching sessions and we can come up and work on your plans and your ideas Um, and one of the things I've just actually done with a, a, a couple was um, they wanted to host the ultimate dinner party. And so, but again, the success of a dinner party relies on you being able to plan it in properly, to yeah. time it to perfection so that you're not stressed, so that your guests are not stressed and you'll end up having a lovely evening. And uh, I'm pleased to say through um, a coaching session with me and some assistance with the preparation, they um, the responses were just amazing and so and and the fact that they've experienced success they now have a plan for their next dinner party they know exactly what to look for how to select recipes a better idea on timing they may need my help but I'm on speed dial and uh, uh, in order to do uh, and to repeat that successful event you're listening to Farmer's Kitchen with Spinneys. Only on Dubai Eye 103.8. So we're talking to Michelle France. She's the founder of Home Cook Me. Now, people are celebrating Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you who are celebrating today. I never grew up celebrating it. Is it something you did? Not at all. Um, in South Africa and Australia, Thanksgiving was never celebrated. Okay. So, no, I'm with you. Yeah, but Christmas is coming too. Oh, so, yes. So turkeys are being <laughs> are needed right now unless you're a vegetarian or a vegan but um we're talking about turkeys um and about how they how you should cook them some people like them frozen Mm -hmm. some not and what's funny is um i woke up this morning and there's an actress called nicole ari parker she's the new sarah jessica parker Mm -hmm. movie and she (laughs) whispered she goes it's 5 a.m and you could tell there was something not right she was not happy and it's thanksgiving today and my husband has bought a frozen turkey. <laughs> so, and she said, so I now have to go and buy one, oh. a fresh one. So she wasn't very happy. So tell me, what is the difference? I mean, can you cook both of them? You certainly can. And I think uh, the, the jury's out. This is a very political topic. Oh. Uh, the frozen versus the fresh debate rages every time, every time this, particularly this time of year. Yeah. But with the frozen ones, I think it just requires uh, pre-planning. You, the, the main thing in cooking mm-hmm. a frozen turkey is that it has to be fully thawed. And How long does that take? It, it usually takes about one day, 24 hours, yeah. for every 2.5 kilos, mm. approximately. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. 
So I, I, the first time I ever went to the Middle East, uh, so I was somewhere in Egypt or somewhere like that, and a friend of mine had meat, and he put it on the balcony in the sun to defrost. Is that healthy? Not at all. That's what I thought. Not at all. And it's something that, that nobody, and, and in all of my experience and reading that I've done and courses I've attended, it is something that um, is, is extremely fraught with with difficulties um, the main or the best way to mm. actually defrost any kind of uh, meat mm. is in the fridge and they usually recommend the bottom wow. trays so not leave in it the out. fridge uh, generally not now in Dubai we do because most of the time our apartments and our villas are in air, uh, air conditioned so they're yeah. not sitting in you know 38 degree heat yeah. um, so in Dubai it is a little bit more accessible but or possible but you've got to watch it very very carefully and certainly with poultry yeah. I wouldn't take any chances now, what about a lot of people out there who um, are vegan? What are the options or vegetarian? Do you get a lot of customers yourself wanting to do I that? I do, I do. And one of the things that um, I pride myself on is, is actually helping mums and dads at home who may have different type of dietary requirements in one family. Yeah. And, and that can be really, really stressful, particularly if you're not confident in the kitchen. You end up finding yourself preparing three or four different types of meals every meal. And that's not something that anybody wants to be doing. So um, it it is important. And there are things that you can do where the base of the meal, for Mm. example, uh, let's take take a risotto, for example. The base of the meal can actually be used for everybody. And then you can jazz it up uh, for your um, vegans and add additional beautifully pan-fried mushrooms or you can go and then for your uh, pescatarians and create a lovely little seafood mix that you've wrapped in or that you've you know marinated some spices and add that to the top Um, so there are some tips and tricks that can help but for Thanksgiving I think the um, the vegetables this is the time where the vegetables can really really shine as much as As the the meat as the support act (laughs) (laughs) well we used to with those who are non-vegetarian yes Definitely, the turkey and the the, the hams take center place. Yeah. But uh, in a vegan or a vegetarian world, there's nothing nicer than having. So, for example, I was talking to Zena before about um, a beautiful pumpkin, and they're very much in season, uh, particularly in, in in the northern hemisphere during yeah. some um, um, during Thanksgiving. And having having that having the the filling taken out or the the the, the, the meat taken out, the meat of the pumpkin, and then have it stuffed right back with some fabulous um, ingredients to make a really exotic and tasty and healthy um, filling. And then you put the lid back on top of the pumpkin, bake it, and you can take that out and present it beautifully um, if your family were predominantly vegan, for example, or vegetarian. Nut roasts are another mm. very, very popular That's way. Nice. Mm-hmm. And there's some of the recipes out there are absolutely mm. delicious. Um, so nut roasts are another popular option for our um, vegan and vegetarian family members um, to enjoy at this uh, during the season. So I grew up eating a lot of turkey for Christmas, but mm-hmm. as we got older, I, I know there was more on the menu like mm-hmm. lamb or beef. And I've kind of gone off turkey because mm-hmm. I find it quite dry. Mm. Now, I have to say to you that that is the major consideration in cooking a turkey. Mm. And I've done uh, lots and lots of trials and experiments, as I'm sure lots and lots of people out there have, about the very, very best way to cook a turkey. Um, one of the ways that they recommend, uh, that that's the preoccupation, is to keep the turkey from drying out. Yeah. So you've got some of the chefs who recommend putting 
cups and cups of herbed butter, for example. Um, now, the skin of a turkey is actually quite tough. Yeah. But so you can very successfully take something like butter, yeah. jazz it up with some fresh herbs, and go and uh, uh, spread it throughout the skin all over the turkey. And it's actually, it doesn't sound very e uh, easy to, to do, but once you begin, it's actually quite an easy process. Um, and you can actually fill it up the entire turkey all the way around, the breast, the legs, and, and get them um, completely covered in this butter so that as it cooks, the moisture in the, in the bird itself is completely preserved. Um, another way that people do, and this is I know in uh, my American friends would really relate to this, is brining, um, which is a which is a wonderful process of actually present uh, uh, making a salt, mostly salt mm. um, uh, solution, and and again you can jazz that up with all sorts of beautiful Christmassy herbs and spices, but you actually brine it, you soak the entire bird in a mostly salt and herbed solution yeah. uh, for up to a day, two days, um, depending on the size of the bird. And you've got to make sure when you start to roast it or barbecue it, that you make sure that you've dried it and mm. patted it completely dry before beginning the cooking process. So there are ways, Poonam, to make sure that that turkey does not get dried out. So can the three of us, you, me and Zina, go for, and Milani go for a roast after? Because, like, my <laughs> mouth is, like, watering right now. <laughs> I know. It's my pleasure. <laughs> and, and let's just to finish this off, how, would, how do you make the best gravy? Some people make it from the fat of the meat. I usually use it very quickly from the little cartons you get. <laughs> Oops, yeah. nobody heard that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they they if and, and this of course is for those who are not vegetarian or vegan. Yeah. Um, but the the turkeys that can also be sold with I don't know if you know about giblets. Yes. And so when you get those, they most chefs will keep that aside and use that to create a stock. So the stock that you create from the giblets, mm. coupled with the juices from the meat mm. during and post-roasting combined together and you've got some other ingredients like red currant jelly you've got um, um, horseradish you've got quite a few bits and pieces that you can actually put in to actually enhance the flavor uh, the flavor of a turkey um, gravy and uh, beyond delicious so if people want to you know uh, learn from you where can they find you online uh, at the moment, they can join my Facebook group, mm -hmm. which is Home Cook Me um, on Facebook. And there I have my contact details. I'm also on Instagram, so yes. Home Cook Me without spaces. There, I'm on Instagram too. My website is pending, so I'll be announcing the arrival of that little gem as <laughs> soon as it's ready. Okay, and I have a request, Zena. From now on, whenever I'm covering Farmer's Kitchen, every single person we have on, just so that I know exactly what I'm talking about, they need to send a sample of their food to me. <laughs> that is is not a bad idea. <laughs> You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai I 103.8. Talking about food, staying on that subject as usual, uh, we're now joined by, I think, is a man who's probably got a better job than me, uh, William Drew, he's a, who is the Director of Content at 50 Best, and his job is to choose the best 50 restaurants in the whole world. I'm a little bit jealous. How are you, William? I'm good, thank you, Finham. Yeah, very nice to join you. Be before we go into this, do you actually, are you a judge? Do you taste food around the world? Is that your job? I don't, I'm afraid. Although I can't complain about my job. It's a great job and I'm privileged to do it. I don't actually choose the restaurants. We have over 200 people uh, 
effectively um, being the judges for uh, the upcoming Middle East and North Africa's 50 best restaurants, for the world's 50 best restaurants. There's more than a thousand voters all across the world. And I just kind of um, help put it together. But I don't vote myself. Uh, because you know that would be that would be compromising uh, of our position. So although I do have a great job and I do get to eat in some great restaurants, I don't actually eat in all of them or choose them. Are you are you based in the UK or in the UAE? Yeah, based in the UK. Uh, the organisation for the world's fifty best restaurants or fifty best as we call it is based in the UK, but it's a it's an international team and we have a network of people all across the globe. And of course, um, in the in the UAE in, in the MENA region as well. Um, and I've just been out to to um, the UAE and to Abu Dhabi, where we'll be hosting the first edition of uh, MENA's Fifty Best Restaurants, and mm. an, event, an event program that, that that goes around that, as well as the culminating in an award ceremony. And that will be happening in February 2022. So very excited to be to be coming back um, uh, with you know and bringing the whole of the region and indeed international chefs and media uh, to the region um, in February. Well, you know, growing growing up in the UK myself in Birmingham, we don't have a lot of takeaway foods or delivery stuff. The only thing you get is fish and chips and you go and get it yourself, right? (laughs) Um, So when I moved to Dubai, it was like, I felt like a little kid in a sweet shop. The amount of restaurants uh, you can get delivered to your door, it's just endless. What was your thoughts of that when you came here? Yeah, I mean the food scene in uh, in the UAE is, is is fantastic, and Dubai's you know developed really fast and lots of um, exciting homegrown concepts, as well as lots of you know international brands and international chefs and dining concepts that have, that have come to the area. I think it's really it'll be really exciting for the global kind of food media and consumers to find out more about the the scene uh, in the UAE and beyond mm-hmm. across across the Middle East and, and North Africa. In fact. Um, I think people don't know as much about it as, as perhaps uh, they might do. And I think what you know, our role as, as an organization is to shine a spotlight on the great restaurants and the great food scene and the food culture um, of, of this region internationally. So who are the judges? I mean, and what, how do they do this? Do they go, do you choose judges from one country and say, right, I want you to choose the best one in this country and you all kind of have a checklist? This, this, there's no criteria, but here's how it works. This, we select over 200 experts from all across the MENA region. So there's 19 countries so, in, so what in, do you in cons- the region. But what do you consider an expert? A chef? A food right. blogger? So, yeah, so uh, approximately one third of them are either chefs or restaurateurs. Mm-hmm. Approximately one third are food writers and, and critics. And then the final third are what we call well-travelled gourmets. So they're people that might be in any other job. They might be in, in another business not related to, to food and drink, but they travel and eat extensively and you know love food. So there's a kind of more of a consumer element to that. So those people are selected. They have to remain anonymous. They can't tell restaurants or anyone that they are they are a judge. And we just uh, they, they have to be well traveled. Although that's obviously been restricted a little bit in, in in the last year or two. But usually it's about international travel as well or travel across the region. Mm. And we simply ask them to choose the best restaurant experiences they've had, whatever it is that makes it the best restaurant experience for them. Because food and taste is so subjective. Some people the food is everything. Other people the uh, the ambience and the service is absolutely vital for most people it's a blend of the two but everyone has their different their different criteria and we don't 
impose any criteria on them. We simply ask them to vote for the best restaurant experiences that, that they have had. Of course, there are various rules about you can't vote for anything you have an involvement with yourself. Yeah. Uh, you have to vote for some outside of the country where you're based as well, because you know we want to, people to compare different concepts and different restaurants in different um, territories. Uh, within the region so you know it's a well-established system that's been running for the world's 50 best restaurants for the last kind of 20 odd years and it creates what we hope is a, a, and believe to be a credible list of great restaurants but most importantly it provides diners with a with, with um, inspiration to travel explore new food explore new cultures through food and then we have the excuse to bring everyone together for a, a, a gastronomic gathering um, which helps you know promote the, the region's food and helps people exchange ideas about food, which is, you know, which is vitally important. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. So I'm back with William Drew. He's the director of content at 50 Best. They're choosing the best 50 restaurants in the MENA region. So, William, I have to ask you, where is the best restaurant you've ever eaten at that you personally feel was an amazing experience? Well, of course, I'm not really allowed to have a, a That's best what I restaurant. Thought. That's why I put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> but I will, I'll tell you what, what I will say. There's, there's, there's some restaurants that have been number one on the world's 50 best restaurants list, which are, which are then become go into a hall of fame called the best of the best. Mm. So they're no longer eligible for the annual vote. And some of those experiences there, including at El Sala de Can Roca in Spain, 11 Medicine Park in New York, mm. uh, Osteria Francescana in um, northern Italy, those experiences have been pretty extraordinary and anyone lucky enough to get the chance to eat in those restaurants on the best of the best list uh, should save up their money, get that reservation in if they can, because it's uh, it, it's uh, a memorable experience that you'll that you'll hold for the rest of your life. You know, um, I've been very blessed to have eaten at many restaurants because I used to do a TV show, so we ate around the world. But the one that stands out in my mind, I think, till the day I die, and I'm thinking, I'm sure you would have been here. It's Le Manoir au Quatre Saisons in Oxford by Raymond Blanc. It was a 13 course dish. It was mind-blowing have you been there i'm sure you have i have yeah i have indeed a number of times and it's a it's a beautiful restaurant beautiful setting amazing produce that comes from the kitchen garden there in the oxfordshire countryside yes. um and raymond Blanc is a bit of a legend in the in yeah. the in the uk food scene certainly yeah okay so i've got fairly good taste you think in restaurants absolutely yeah <laughs> that's spot on <laughs> okay so let's talk about um Noma, the restaurant Noma, I don't know anything about this, but apparently it holds the top spot. Tell me about it. Noma's probably been the most influential restaurant on the global and the international food scene and amongst fellow chefs of the last of the last decade. Wow. Um, it's an extraordinary restaurant. It it won the it topped the, the list of the world's best restaurants um, uh, t- 10 years ago. It then went through a spell of moving, doing different projects around the world, then moved location within Copenhagen. So it's and in Copenhagen. reinvented itself. So it's, and, in, and, and, so it's in Copenhagen. But, it's in Copenhagen so, in Denmark. Let me ask you a question. Um, you would, ne- I would never have thought. I think Paris, New York, but Copenhagen for one of the top restaurants in the world. And interestingly, the number two restaurant in the world is also in Copenhagen. What? So Denmark has uh, is really done an, an extraordinary job. And as you say, not not necessarily known historically for its food, but I guess one of the jobs of this list, or one of the the byproducts of that, is to encourage people to explore different territories and not just. You know, rely on 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 if you like the the classic uh, cities and uh, cuisines, yeah. but to explore 
new cuisines uh, from different parts of the world, whether that be from from Peru in, in South America to Vietnam to China to Japan, uh, of course, the Middle East as well. And, um, you know, Copenhagen is, has really used food as a driver for tourism and for, for people to, to explore its, uh, its city and its culture as well. So let me ask you, do you cook yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Not very well. I have you to just say. test taste. I'm I'm a better I'm a better eater than I am a cook, so I'm definitely good at going to restaurants and eating lots of food. So, um, <laughs> with or choosing the top fifty in the MENA region, do you think uh, Dubai and the UAE have got a really good chance of getting a lot of restaurants in this list? Look, I think everyone knows that the the restaurant scene in the UAE is 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 really uh, well developed. Um, there's some amazing restaurants. I've experienced some myself in the uh, just just last week, both in Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Um, of course, I'm sure it will be well represented. Um, it's important that the rest of the region is represented too, and that this is not a fine dining list. It's not intended to be a fine dining list. It's a li- simply a list of great restaurants. Now, that might be a local place. It might be a casual place oh, that's in great. Morocco or in the Lebanon as well. So, you know, it's not just the sort of what you might call the, the posh places that we want to highlight. We're highlighting places that you have a great experience at, yeah. whether that be, you know, local or or a sort of one-off um, high-end experience. Oh, I like that because I just assumed it'd be fine dining and stuff. But I think the, some local places, they have just a few things on their menu, but they're amazing. Absolutely. And some of those local places where, yeah, as you say, they specialise in just one or two things can be the best experiences. And, you know, we ask our voters to, to, to select their best experiences. And so if they have their seven or ten votes, they might select one place that is, a, a, you know, a once a year a uh, very swanky special occasion place. Yeah. And, and then they might uh, select a place that they go to once a week because uh, they've got their favourite snack. And both of those are just as valid. They're just different and they give you a reflection of the of the diverse cuisine of the region as a whole. All right. Well, William, go and get some fish and chips for me because I'm not there, <laughs> OK? And it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Really good to talk to you. Thank Cheers. you. Bye. The Chef's Table. So now it's time for The Chef's Table. And on the show today is Amir Abbasi. He's the chef of Dawood Restaurant in the Pakistan Pavilion in Expo 2020. How are you today, Chef? I'm fine. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It's nice to uh, have you on the line here today. Um, I haven't been to the uh, Pakistani pavilion yet. There's still many pavilions I have yet to visit. So it's good to get the lowdown first of what kind of uh, things are happening there, especially with the food, which is my favorite bit. First, tell everybody, what does Dawat actually mean? Dawat is all about uh, Pakistani cuisine. Um, we created a menu which is uh, only for the... Uh, starting from the appetizers, the soups, and the main courses, is typically uh, fine dining, but only from the Pakistani cuisine. Yeah, because it's interesting, because um, I'm actually Punjabi, so obviously the North oh, Indian right. food, you know, I know that yeah. very well. Um, I haven't been to a fine dining Pakistani restaurant before. Now, this is on the rooftop, so is it all open firstly when people come? They'll be sitting outdoors? Uh, yes, it's our first club dining facility, first of all. Mm. It's uh, open air, and uh, we are open for the dinner for the time being because of the weather condition. Um, that's why otherwise it will be open for the lunch as well. So, you know, when you go to restaurants, let's say if I go to a Chinese restaurant and they say if there's Chinese people eating there, it must mean it's good. So do you get a lot of uh, local Pakistani people coming to eat there? Yes, of course. Um, a lot of Pakistani people. And secondly, the forecast was uh, based on Pakistani people. But to be honest, 
the footfall is uh, 70 30 or 60 40 uh, the, we 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 receive the people are all around the world not only from the pakistan and yesterday especially from the emirates from the european countries and i was on each and every table uh, with the girls and everybody was praised about the food that's amazing so you've got people from all of the nationalities enjoying yes, the food yes. so tell me what is traditional pakistani food compared to other foods around india and pakistan what makes it stand uh, out if you start from the uh, soups, we kept uh, Multani soup, which is uh, Pakistani national soup, mm-hmm. of course, uh, which is purely made with the lentils. And secondly, I kept uh, one clear soup, which is uh, uh, Siripaya Ogretan, because normally people are very familiar with the French onion soup, <laughs> a very clear soup. Yeah. But we kept uh, Siripaya Ogretan, which is clearly broth soup, and served with the naan. Instead of the garlic bread, uh, we kept uh, live, uh, I mean, garlic naans. Okay, now it's funny because if you think about it, lentil soup, even things like biryani, you find them all over the place, right? So yes, what, what makes your lentil soup or your biryani slightly unique compared to, let's say, you'd find in another Indian restaurant or another Arabic restaurant? Is it a different spice you use from Pakistan or something? Uh, yes, so because yesterday it was one of the main questions from the guests that uh, the biryani, when they saw the biryani, they said this is something different because mm-hmm. of its colors, uh, first of all. And secondly, the main thing is the spices. I brought personally uh, all the stuff from the Pakistan, the people, those who are specialized in uh, different regional foods, and all the spices from Pakistan. What are the most common spices that you find in Pakistan? Uh, in Pakistan, the coriander, the cumin. Yeah. And uh, if you talk about uh, about the chili as well, uh, because they have the different flavors, you know. Yes. The chef's table. So we've just been talking to Chef Amir Abasi, who is the chef of Dawat Restaurant in the Pakistan Pavilion, and now we're going to find out a little bit about him. Our chef's table. We like to delve into the world of these chefs. Now, Chef, let's start with you. Where were you actually born? Were you born in Pakistan? Uh, yes, I was born and raised in Pakistan. I started my culinary career from one of the five-star hotel and resort. Which, which area? Which area were you born in Pakistan? Uh, in, in Islamabad. In Islamabad. Near, near the Islamabad, there is a place which called Mari. Yes. I was born in Mari. Okay, nice. And um, when you think back when you were a child, what is one of your first food memories that you remember? Uh, to be honest, I was. Uh, I mean, I, I get this passion from my mother. Because she is the best cook, Aww. and uh, this is this is the, again a very common question that people are asking. So I was inspired by my my mom, mm. and uh, from my childhood I decided that I will be the best chef. I mean, that time it was a cook level, but of course it was my passion to be the best chef. So, so is it your mom that taught you how to cook as well? Uh, to be honest, not now, but at the beginning, on the early stage, yes, of course, I was uh, I was with her while she was busy in the kitchen. But uh, soon I became, you know, the hotelier and I started my career in the hotel. And whenever I tried to cook something at home, my mother stopped me. She says, no, 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 oh, <laughs> you're yeah. doing too much. You know? Yeah, that's, that's exactly the same with me when you do it in the kitchen, the mom or the dad. My dad was the same. But, <laughs> but what, what age did you start getting an interest in cooking? What age were you? Uh, to me, it, was, it was a school life. Uh, I mean, you can say that it was almost uh, 90s mm-hmm. when I was in school. I was, you know, involved with my mom while she was preparing some food because I, I'm, I have, you know, good taste buds. And uh, I started my career in 1998 from a hotel, from a five-star hotel yeah. as a cook apprentice, which was a training-based, three-year training. 
So what has been your highlight as a chef? What's something that really stands out for you? Uh, to be honest, um, if you ask me that what is the pride during these past 23 years, um, what I have achieved, this is the best achievement for me uh, to be head chef in Pakistan Pavilion to lead my country. Mm. And uh, I was the cholesterol executive chef for one of the international flagship hotel property in Saudi Arabia uh, for three three properties, three hotels. I was the cholesterol executive chef, director of food and beverage. Uh, but when I was called by the officials to lead Pakistan uh, in Pakistan Pavilion, and I left everything and I grabbed this opportunity wow. just for the country. Amazing. So let me ask you, is there a dish that you feel describes you if you had to serve it up? I know it's a weird question. <laughs> <laughs> it, could even be be honest, a, it could even be a dessert. <laughs> yes. To, to be honest, you know, in the menu, when you ask to a chef, like the same question if you ask to a mom that, uh, I mean, among your children's that who is the most favorite for her, for her. It's very quite difficult to ex- explain. But again, uh, if you see my menu, yes. uh, we created the menu from the entire uh, Pakistani regions, from from KPK, from Sin, from Punjab, from Kashmir, mm. from all over the you know six regions of Pakistan. And uh, the Lahori fish is, uh, I mean, this is our hot selling item, mm. and that is the best. Okay, so the Lowry fish. Now, um, what is one of the best compliments you've had at a chef that really you really remember? Um, I work uh, for the for the international flagship properties uh, not only in UAE, in Saudi Arabia, in Pakistan, mm-hmm. and uh, the most uh, I mean the highly appreciation which I got it was by the president of the Pakistan. Amazing! Uh, while I cooked for him and I served for him. Do you do you get a little bit down when you see any bad reviews? Have you had throughout your career any of the odd yeah. bad reviews? And how does that make you feel? Uh, being a chef, yes, of course, sometimes you feel sensitive. But again, you know, um, I, I I do believe that all the even the bad reviews are for the uh, betterment of the, uh, the restaurant because at the end of the day, you know, you are getting the feedback from the guests. You know, yes. you cannot you cannot. Uh, uh, explain to your staff that on which level they are right now. Mm. Uh, when you get the feedbacks from the guests, of course, sometimes you know they are they are a little bit negative, but they they will give you a chance to improve. So let's say you go home and you're tired and you have to make one dish that you just feel like it's comfort food for you and it's quick. What is that dish that you would make? That must be a chicken karai. Chicken karai. Oh, that's yes. how, the way you say that makes me hungry. <laughs> I'm already hungry. You can most welcome anytime, please. Uh, uh, Dawah, please. <laughs> okay, and um, this is not a nice question, but it's a, I'm going to ask it to you. What would be your last meal on earth if you had to choose one last dish to eat? Again, it will be a chicken karai. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I want some Punjabi chicken now, like you're talking about. So I'm going to come. Do, are we serving chicken karai at the Pakistani pavilion? Can I get it there? Yes, of course. Why not? That is the star item. Oh, my goodness. That's the star but item. Chicken karai, Pakistani food is, I mean, completed. Oh, okay, chef. Well, I think uh, Pakistani pavilion. Are you there every day if I need to come and find you? <laughs> 
Yes, yes. <laughs> You're there every. Are you Are you there every day? Do you have to be there every day? Yes, yes. I'm. I'm almost there. Okay, you must meet some amazing people and from all over the world. It must be great being there every day. Yes, of course. Even as I, as I said yesterday, you know, I mean, last night on dinner, I was on the floor uh, with all the guests, and especially from the Emirati people. Yeah. I mean, few people they called me on the table, and then while I was busy in the kitchen on the passing, and they says, you know, this is the, the finest food which they receive, you know. Uh, I mean, from any Pakistani restaurant. Well, I'm going to be there next Wednesday and I will come and find you and you can give me this chicken karai. <laughs> okay, Chef, that was amazing. Thank you so much. That was Chef Amir Abbasi. Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. Don't forget, you can tune in live to Farmer's Kitchen every single Thursday afternoon on Dubai Eye 103.8 between 2 and 5 p.m.